0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Jolly with this uh, special look back over the political year of 2016. I'm joined by Tim Shipman, political editor of the Sunday Times and also the keeper of the red box email flame on a Sunday morning. Tim, let's look back at where we were at the beginning of the year. David Cameron was still negotiating with Brussels. George Osborne and Michael Goh sat around the Cabinet table. Jeremy Corbyn hadn't even started his revenge reshuffle. Can we be sure it's now even ended? Boris Johnson was Mayor of London. Nigel Farage was trying to keep UKIP from obscurity. And Donald Trump was a reality TV star with an overactive imagination and Twitter account. Well, that's not
2: changed, at least. (laughs) It's still true. The Donald Trump thing is still true. The Twitter feed is still magnificent uh, on a daily basis. It's um, so. It, uh, I should explain, we are
1: standing just below Big Ben, because I thought it would be nice to, to show that we do actually spend our time in Westminster, trying to follow what the hell's going on. I mean, it seems like a daft question. Anyone you haven't got any idea at the beginning of the
2: year quite how momentous it was going to be? The only correct answer is no, is it not? <laughs> I think the it is. There uh, were clues, there were signs. I mean, um, we'd seen you know, in a general election the year before, which had got a result that not a lot of people were expecting. Um, and I think there were quite a few people around David Cameron who were not taking it for granted that he was going to win the referendum and keep his job. There were conversations as early as January about, you know, what would he do uh, if he did lose, but none of us really predicted it. Some of us put a few quid on it as a kind of sort of hedging our bets. Can I, as can it I ask what odds they were? That's well, odds. I got four to one on Trump and on uh, the referendum. Oh, there we are. So, you know, it's not all bad. <laughs> there's always a,
1: there's always a, a silver lining. Now, do you think looking back, because it, 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 at the very beginning of the year, the sort of Westminster political conversation was all about all this technical stuff about emergency brakes and sovereignty bills and all that and it was all, looking back now, it, it couldn't seem more at odds with what we now judge to be the public mood.
2: Well it all seemed completely irrelevant in the, you know, in the general tide of 30 years of Euroscepticism and what is clearly a movement sweep, sweeping the West of people who are pretty knocked off with the way globalisation has rewarded a few at the top and not them. Um, But, you know, if we think we've escaped from boring minutiae, you know, you only have to look at the debate going on now about what Brexit means to know that we're going to spend the next two years of our lives pouring over the same kind of mind-numbing details that we were pouring over at the start of the year. We're just looking at it from the sort of other end of the telescope. Listen,
1: it would be remiss of us not to discuss your book, which covers the uh, extraordinary period of Have the friend Have I written a book? Co- I was not aware Apparently of so. I th- you ought to tell people about it more. You oh, ought to tell people about, about it more. Yes. But before we do I think we should go inside, because actually it's quite cold standing outside. So let's go inside and we'll reconvene. And- Ready to pop the question?
0: So we've reconvened in
1: uh, Portcullis House where uh, MPs come to plot over cups of coffee and journalists come to ask MPs who they're plotting against. So Tim, um, let's go back to the EU referendum campaign. In terms of British politics, it's by far the biggest thing uh, that's happened this year. Even when it's sort of got underway, I've been rereading Red Box emails from the start of the year for various end-of-year review type things, and it's really striking that at the start of the campaign how the main seemed well ahead, they've got the sort of better outfit, the, you know, there was lots of vote leave trying to
2: fight back. Uh, At what point do you think that turned? The whole thing turned at the end of May. I mean, you're right, the initial period, it looked like Remain were doing pretty well because they appeared to be winning the debate about the economy, um, by which George Osborne meant he'd put out a load of figures saying that uh, we'd all be much worse off uh, if we voted to leave. The problem was that all the people who were voting uh, looked at their own economic circumstances, saw that they had uh, not had wage rises in a decade, and thought, well, actually, how much worse could it be? It's not going to make any difference to my life. And what Osborne hadn't clocked, was that immigration was a sort of was an economic issue. It was not some kind of esoteric nationalist issue. It was about the pound in people's pockets. And so what happened at the end of May, in the space of about six days, the immigration figures came out showing that 330,000 people had come the previous year net. Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, after a few months of mucking about, uh, were finally persuaded by Dominic Cummings, who was running the Leave campaign, that they should take a baseball bat, in Cummings' words, to David Cameron on the subject of immigration. They gave a letter to the Sunday Times saying that Cameron was corroding public trust on the issue. Um, And that was the first sort of real hardcore blue-on-blue action from from Gove and Johnson. And then the following week, they started to act like a government in waiting and they put out a series of policies, the most significant of which was that they would have introduced an Australian-style points system. And in the space of that week, the polls turned and, frankly, Remain never got back on top after that.
1: And what was fascinating was the way that Vote Leave was able to do both immigration and the economy. They tried to construct an economic argument for you know, trading with the rest of the world. The Remain just couldn't find a way of addressing immigration. They just tried not to talk about
2: it. Yeah, there were numerous moments during the campaign where people in the Remain campaign said, well, we've got a jolly good idea if David Cameron made a speech and said, you know, I hear you on this issue um, and we're going to do something about it. There were also, you know, moments where he was on the verge of calling up Angela Merkel and asking her for a little bit more. And constantly he was told by his pollster that he was ahead and that the economy would trump immigration. And neither of those things was true. Because they misunderstood that immigration itself was an economic issue. They also thought that this number that the Leave campaign kept trotting out, £350 million a week being paid to Brussels, was somehow a sort of separate esoteric issue. Um, but as Dominic Cummings understood. Sending money to Brussels is also an economic issue. So this idea that they've won the economic argument is just bunker. What,
1: what was fascinating in a way, I think this is fascinating with referendums generally, but this one in particular, is such a big issue, which has been picked over for, like you said, 40 years, ends up essentially splitting the country right down the middle. 50-50, essentially, is what the polls were telling us, you know, one, you know, within the margin of error. Uh, even then, to have polls on the night calling it for Remain, Nigel Farage conceding defeat at uh, at one point, and then it, it it tipped the other way. But it was, it was amazing. That it, I sort of thought that by the time we got to June 23rd, one side a would tide have. tide would have developed around One order. way or the other. Yeah. Somebody would have sealed the deal. And it, 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 and maybe that's why the, the debate now is so. Um,
2: but I think this is what Spinelli no did. I think what we've had here is, frankly, what they've had in America for a very long time, which is that the country is actually split down the middle between two different world views. And, you know, there are people who've benefited from the fact that we've had open borders and that we've had a pretty thriving and open economy, and there are people who have not. And what's actually happened is that the people. people. People who've not uh, benefited from that have fought back. And some people think this is some kind of abnegation of democracy. It's actually a great moment of democracy um, because generations of politicians have wanted to do it their way. And, you know, look after the likes of you and me with our liberal view of the world and our... Uh, reasonably successful economic kind of standing, um, and actually, the people who have missed out and have been ignored, and all these politicians thought they could ignore, have said we've had enough of this. And, and actually, this is one of the great democratic flowerings in uh, Western society for, for many generations.
1: No, I, I agree. There were people who said that David, you know, that the, the result proved that David Cameron shouldn't, have, you know, he shouldn't have had the referendum. The very fact that he voted to leave proved, you know, I, I think made the case. of it, He was absolutely right to have it and to sort of press the reset button on. Well, you wonder what would have happened Facebook if we' would not consensus. had it
2: and the same the emotions that led people to vote to leave um, had been suppressed for, for even longer um, you know it is not fanciful to suggest as Nigel Farage has that, that you know we would have reached a moment where you would have had violence in the streets you know the, the, the safety valve of democracy has actually worked in this case and it's now up to the political classes to respond to that um, you know it, it's not clear yet that they're doing so effectively um, but that's, uh, that will be what concerns us in 2017. Well let's let's move on to uh, the political class responsible, the
1: political class now led by Theresa May for somebody who disappeared almost completely during the referendum campaign that's basically why she then managed to emerge from the wreckage as the last person well, it's standing
2: Well just like Bar at the end of Hamlet, you know, everybody lies bleeding to death on the stage and you know this figure sort of tiptoes in and uh, works their way through the wreckage um, you know, Theresa May Either out of uh, fairly sort of agnostic conviction about the issues at hand, or because she'd worked out that being a the sort of subtle remainder was the way forward. Um, ended up, you know, in the right position, and uh, in the end was in a better position than Boris Johnson, who everyone thought was the one who'd made the, the cynical career decision. Um, read my book. I'm not entirely convinced by that. Um, I think Boris uh, uh, was more consistent than some people have given him credit for. But in the end, um, you know, she was the one who was able to work her way through the wreckage. Do you think that? Uh, Boris and Michael Gove back to leave, not
1: expecting to win.
2: I think I think neither of them had initially expected to win, um, and it's certainly true that on the night, Michael Gove, you know, quite astonishingly, took himself off to bed, <laughs> thinking that they had not quite done enough, um, and. Um, but did they, through the campaign, not want to win? I don't think that's correct. I think their competitive juices started to flow, and when things began to get a little bit tense and a little bit ugly, um, you know, they tried very hard indeed to win. And some would say they were a good deal more ruthless about it than David Cameron was, who, throughout this period, Put the unity of the Conservative Party before winning the referendum, and you know he felt he was going to win, and he didn't want the party to be uh, left in a heap of wreckage. And Theresa May actually has quite a lot to thank David Cameron for, because it meant that she inherited something that was sort of vaguely intact. Had, had Cameron done everything possible to win the referendum, I think the Conservative Party would, would be in tatters right now.
1: It, it is it is remarkable the sort of the general sense of uh, unity. That um, that the, the crazy week. In oh, a, a, a year full of Crazy Week. But the, the Crazy Week, which sort of began with, uh, we thought, a series of leadership uh, campaigns being launched. And there was Theresa May's, and then obviously Boris Johnson crashed out, then Michael Gove launched his, and then before we knew it, uh, Angela Ledson was talking about being a mother, and it all sort of collapsed. What, what, what really struck me, I mean, it was around the time as well when um, Jeremy Corbyn. Talked about uh,
2: oh, Jeremy Corbyn. You remember
1: Jeremy? You remember Jeremy Corbyn in that?
2: In that? Um, I don't period. remember him much during the referendum campaign. I think it's fair to say, which is certainly a, a criticism that uh, many people in his party could have as well. Um, but he compared Israel
1: to ISIS. <laughs> yes. uh, I said to him in that whole crazy week, and all of those things would have been massive stories for weeks individually. We we, we had
2: the biggest story of the year about six times in the space of ten days (laughs) Uh, and uh, those of us that uh, managed to live to a ripe old age will be looking back on uh, what happened uh, at the end of June and the start of July uh, we will be boring generations of our <laughs> descendants about uh, how exciting it was to be there, but it was sort of it came at you like um, a sort of computer game, with you know, one bit of nonsense after another hitting you in the face each morning. It was a fairly extraordinary time to be a journalist.
1: It, I mean, particularly, I, mean, I think uh, I've been here for a decade. I think you've been here a bit longer. There were times when the most important thing in British politics was how David Cameron's shoes got to the office behind him, or. The, the exact wording of uh, potential made-up disagreements between Gordon Brown and Tony Black. Well, like none of those disagreements were made no, up. No, they were not they made were, up. They were all much Maybe worse than exactly ever they, we true. ever realised
2: at the time. But, you know, it's a sign of how peace has descended, that this weekend um, we ran an interview with uh, Theresa May in the Summer Times magazine, and the thing that has most excited everyone's attention is her chocolate leather trousers. Chocolate leather so trousers, it's exactly it's, right. You know, we can at least look back and say that somehow... We've triumphed as a political class that we are again concerned Well, in fact,
1: when I, was, when I was thinking about doing this and looking back on 2016, the thing that really struck me is that 2016 has been an extraordinary year for, British, for politics, but for British politics, it all happened in the first half. Since Theresa May became Prime Minister, really, almost nothing has happened, which is precisely what she wanted, and then sort of shut down all news. But we had a decade's worth of news within the first six months. And we haven't really had a, a
2: week's worth of news since. No, that's probably very true. And I think I suppose we're all sort of, on one level, slightly grateful that we can see our <laughs> loved ones again. Um, but uh, the gratitude will probably expire on January the first, uh, where we'll be chasing news hard. I mean, one factor of, of this attempted shutdown at news is that this has been a far leakier government than the previous one ever was. If you go around having cabinet government and discussing everything around the table. Uh, it does happen that people around that table pass on some of that information and I don't think I've ever seen so many top-level documents uh, leak in the last three months uh, than I have in the previous decade and a half, so um, you know there is some encouragement for those of us uh, reptilians seeking to <laughs> jimmy out um, details of what the Prime Minister might be thinking on Brexit. Um, I, I
1: know that around the, the period where we seem to be having almost daily leaks from Cabinet, David Cameron was uh, chuckling to himself and was telling people that uh, the good thing about sofa government is sofas don't
2: leak. Sofas don't. If you put six people on a sofa, which is quite cosy at the best of times, those six people tend to be your closest aides. Uh, if you talk in a room with 25 people, um, these things have a habit of getting out.
1: Um, so I suppose we, 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 we've been slightly dismissive of Jeremy Corbyn. We should slightly touch on the Labour Party. I mean, to say it's been rocky uh, for Jeremy Corbyn is probably an understatement. But, but you know, he's as I kept writing in the uh, Box email, uh, he, he clung on obviously despite everything that was thrown at him: coups, leadership challenges, uh, resi- you know, cabinet, uh, shadow cabinet uh, resignations on mass. But he sort of gl- glided through it all was re-elected with an even bigger mandate uh, than before in September. Does he end the year any better or
2: worse off than he started it? Well, I think he ends the the year probably better off, actually, because, um, as you say, I mean, it wasn't just the Tories that were having, you know, six years of news in six days. I mean, the, the, the things that happened to Jeremy Corbyn after the referendum, you know, defy any kind of coup plot that we saw under Blair, Brown or Miliband. Tony Blair was forced to name his retirement date after Tom Watson got six people to resign in one afternoon and wrote a stiffly worded letter. I um, mean, we saw 67 people resign
0: from the front <laughs> bench,
2: um, and two thirds of his MPs say we don't think you're up to the job. And he just said, "Well, I don't care. Thank you very much." Um, and if you go back to sort of party conference in October, the conversations you were having a year prior to that were about with people saying, well, how do we get rid of them? What should we do? Should we do it like this? Should we do it like that? Um, this year, um, they were talking about, well, how do they avoid disselection? And what are they going to do with their lives uh, if they can't make any kind of progress at the next general election? So those people are sort of resigned to Corbyn staying in charge. And if you look at the movements, you know, around the world, the, the kind of people that Corbyn is trying to appeal to, you know, this is a guy with a movement who could actually achieve something in British politics if he was slightly more palatable to a mainstream electorate. And it's up to Jeremy Corbyn now to decide whether he wants to double down on his love of Fidel Castro and his sympathy <laughs> for terrorists around the world, um, or whether he wants to make himself a credible leader of the opposition who can start laying a glove a little bit more often on Theresa May. His performances at Prime Minister's questions have got a bit better, but Corbyn's got a huge opportunity here. Um, and if he were slightly a slightly different politician i think the Tories would be pretty concerned about it
1: uh, right now they're not but that could change it was really striking i thought after donald trump won the labor party couldn't quite work out what its line was on the is one this hand, good
2: news for them or bad news? yeah
1: on the one hand he was a dreadful racist misogynistic homophobic monster who must be um, opposed uh, on all fronts And yet, on the other hand, he'd defied the polls, he'd used social media to reach out beyond uh, the mainstream media, and he'd captured uh, a group of people who felt economically disadvantaged uh, and left behind and not not reached by uh, traditional politics. And so they they got themselves into a bit of a muddle. I think they're they're now sort of lined up on the he's a terrible, beastly man, but they also uh, think there is an opportunity for them. Isn't the problem that actually Corbyn just isn't as a, an appealing character I mean Donald Trump is essentially a character who has appealed to millions of Americans I think it's Americans. quite
2: hard to see Jeremy Corbyn holding yeah. down a prime time television show <laughs> you know in which he picks a new political candidate for example yeah you're right they've they've retreated to Trump's a terrible person and uh, you know you see the same things when Marine Le Pen pops up on television that she's a wicked old racist as well um which she may very well be, if you study her yeah. more closely. But the, the problem Corbyn's got that overrides all his other problems is that he's not, it appears, fundamentally that interested in actually winning power. He's got this opportunity. He's Some of the people around him have been clever enough to set up this momentum group and uh, understand that if you energise the young and the disadvantaged, you can actually achieve something in politics. The problem is, if, you're, if you don't get up in the morning... With a burning desire to be prime minister more than anything else, um, it's quite difficult to use those mechanisms to, to go anywhere.
1: Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a driving force there. There is also a problem, Paul Nuttall, the new UKIP leader, sort of put his finger on this when he uh, when he was announced as the new leader. Is that the sort of the, the Labour conversation under Jeremy Corbyn, which is climate change, workers' rights, and you know Fidel Castro in Palestine? Uh, that's not where the potential... He's got
2: the movement, but he hasn't got the message. Yeah. Um, And you look at what Paul Nuttall said. I mean, what Trump has been successful at, what Le Pen is successful at, what, you know, the Austrian people who are doing this are successful at, what they did with Brexit was to make a very patriotic, nationalistic argument. And the problem that Corbyn's got is the one argument that he is constitutionally not willing to make is, is a patriotic, nationalistic argument. As Paul Nuttall said, you know, this is a guy... Who didn't sing the national anthem in his first major public appearance as the leader of the opposition? He has a shadow chancellor who is very sympathetic to Irish Republican terrorists. He has um, a uh, shadow home sector who won't talk about immigration. And he has a shadow foreign sector who's mocked the English flag. Now, those are, that's as pithy a well, summary do you, what do you, of what like <laughs> people on the, uh, the centre and the, and the centre right don't think Labour is a threat under Corbyn because, however, however clever he's been at tapping into the sort of economic disadvantage and people who feel they've been left out, a lot of those working-class voters in the north of England are far more likely to be receptive to Paul Nuttall's nationalistic message than they are to Jeremy Corbyn's open borders and let's all hail for Castro message. One of the striking things has been
1: that... Um well, obviously, Theresa May is miles ahead in the polls now, but all the, all the other parties, are largely unmoved. UKIP haven't really moved since the referendum. Oh, um, the Lib Dems have
2: charged all the way up to 8 or 9%.
1: <laughs> They're back from being an asterisk. They're now up into real numbers.
2: They are up into real numbers, and they've got an opportunity as well. I mean, Tim Farren's been fairly canny, and he has uh, realised that the, the main growth area for them is to be the sort of unabashed fans of the 48% and argue for, you know, a very soft Brexit or no Brexit at all. And they've, you know, at a local level, they've done quite well. They've picked up 20 or 13 council seats uh, in the last few months. Um, and, you know, they have a chance to sort of uh, get themselves back into the teams. And it's not, it's not a given that UKIP will sort of stride on to success without Nigel Farage. He's sort of wafted off to do his own thing. Um, and I, I rather suspect that by 2020, the, the thing that will be more important is what Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks, uh, the guy who funded UKIP and funded Leave.EU during the campaign, they're the guys who were hanging out with Donald Trump. They're the people who were talking about... You know Running their own candidates to oust useless MPs uh, i 'm slightly surprised that banks has only identified two hundred of them that he 'd like to get rid of um, but uh but that, that could be far more significant, actually, uh, than, than what happens with UKIP and the Lib Dems because they've got money and they've got a, a social network with a million people on their subscription list and, and wherever they throw their weight around um, is going to be significant. They may end up causing Theresa May rather more stu- more, rather more difficulty than, t- than Jeremy Corbyn Yeah,
1: yeah. But I mean, obviously we're now completely out of the business of making predictions, but do you think the general election now is off until 2020?
2: Well, I don't think we can... I think, I think it's definitely off until it's definitely on, and that is a fatuous answer. At the moment, the way the things are aligned, um, Theresa May is absolutely adamant that she's not having a general election, and I've not found anybody around her who ever questions that. They think her brand is that she doesn't muck about, she doesn't play party politics. Um, she's not someone who's going to go and do something for the gain of the Conservative Party that might uh, cause disruption for the nation. But, and that, that remains true until it doesn't. And, you know, if there is turbulence, if the economy starts to tank, if, um, uh, you know, things start to go wrong in Brussels and she needs to um, make a point and have a renewed mandate, um, then if it becomes politically necessary to hold a general election, she'll hold a general election. Her dramatic inclination is to not do so, um, and it will take a fairly dramatic series of events to make make that change. But um, it is not impossible that it will change, um, but if I were putting money on it now, I would put a decent sum on the general election being in 2020. Yeah, yeah. So what, what should we expect next year, apart from it presumably being a bit of an anti-climax this year? Well, I think we get, well, it will be an anti-climax because the first, you know, arguably nine months of the year will be taken up with uh, those kind of debates about minutiae around Brexit. Um, I mean, I hate to say it, but the most interesting things that will be going on will be happening in other countries. Um, we'll be seeing Donald Trump sworn in um, at the end of January, um, and then you've got elections in both France and Germany, which will define a great deal who we're negotiating with and what the shape of that negotiation is likely to be. Theresa May was insistent that she wanted to declare Article 50 in March, but pretty well everybody in the government acknowledges the point that George Osborne was making publicly, that there's really not a great deal going to be achieved before the autumn. Until we know what state Angela Merkel's in and whether she's had to tack to the right to see off her own version of UKIP, the AFD, we won't really know what we're up against. Do you, think, do you think she will still do it in March, or do you
1: think that she'll just, she might push that back, basically I, make that make No, that I think
2: harvest? she'll still try and do it, you know, she she believes in being a woman of her word. I, yeah. yeah. We'll send a letter, and then we'll sit around waiting for an answer, that's what will happen. And then, you know, you'll, you'll see a lot of restive Brexit ministers getting on planes and making a large song and dance about going to see people who don't really want to talk to them yet.
1: And then, and then those ministers immediately brief what they've just been told...
2: Yes it's been and then they it. get told off for saying anything at all. We
1: are uh, British ministers are told not to give a running commentary but well, any commentary at all would be good, yeah. running or otherwise, wouldn't it? <laughs> Tidy. A static commentary <laughs> would be some news. For us. A, a small drizzle of commentary uh, would be um, absolutely fine. Uh, listen, Tim, thank you very much. Just to remind uh, listeners again, if they haven't already uh, bought your book, what's it called? It's called All Out War,
2: and it's in all good and bad bookshops.
1: And it has had uh, terrific uh, reviews. If you do want a definitive account of uh, the EU referendum and the quite extraordinary uh, fallout, uh, then that's... The uh, but that you need. As ever, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. You can subscribe uh, via iTunes on your Android device so it gets delivered to you every week. Also, uh, post a review there if you can. Uh, you can sign up to my morning red box email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box email. But thank you for listening to the podcast throughout this year. Uh, for now, from Tim and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.